There is a very specific microbiome makeup that's associated with obesity and excess body fat. So if we want to improve our microbiome ratio and improve our number of species of microbes, we have to improve our intake of prebiotic. The more diversity we have is associated with the greater number of health benefits. Every single thing that we're taking a medication for, it doesn't just affect one thing. Everything is connected. And every year, over 400,000 people die with issues related to obesity. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, super excited about today's episode. Sean Stevenson is a legend in the podcast sphere and the holistic health world. His model health show is one of the top shows on iTunes pretty much all the time. So it was really exciting to connect with a fellow podcaster and his book, Eat Smarter. Oh my goodness. So much science, so much detail. We dive into so many fun topics today, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. The show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash eat smarter. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. Also, there will be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. If you are enjoying this podcast, it would mean the absolute world, world, world if you could take a moment and write a brief iTunes review. Those reviews help so much more than most people realize. So thank you guys. It really, really means the world. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Sean Stevenson. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a veritable legend in the biohacking sphere, honestly. It's been a long time coming. I recently read a book called Eat Smarter, Use the Power of Food to Reboot Your Metabolism, Upgrade Your Brain, and Transform Your Life. Friends, I received the book. The title sounded very promising (laughs) with the topics that it was going to discuss. Words cannot express the level of depth of knowledge of information that I learned reading this book. I know in the health and wellness sphere, there's a pretty good understanding, especially in like my community, the biohacking community, oftentimes the keto community of things like how our food affects our metabolism, affects our body weight. You know, people are pretty familiar with things like insulin and hormones and how body fat can be stored or gained. But there's a level beyond that, which you guys love that you know I love, where you really go into the detail of literally all the factors affecting ourselves, why we're gaining weight, why we're not gaining weight, how food affects our sleep, our diet, our stress, so many things. This book blew my mind. I learned so much and I am so excited to be here with the author, Sean Stevenson, so we can dive deep, deep, deep into all of it. 
You guys are probably familiar with Sean. He's the host of the number one health podcast. Yes, number one, The Model Health Show. He is also the author of a prior book, Sleep Smarter, and he's been all over the place, Forbes, The New York Times, ABC, ESPN, so many things, all well-warranted. I am so honored to be here right now with him. Sean, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Me too. Me too. So to start things off, I, I bet a lot of my listeners are probably pretty familiar with your work, but for those who are not, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal story? You have a really fascinating personal story with your own relationship with diet and health and fitness. What led you? Well, first of all, I, I'm actually really curious what led you to start Model Health Show and then ultimately what led you to writing this book, Eat Smarter? Sure. Awesome. Well, starting the show, you know, I was, so I've been in this field for 19 years and clinical practice as a nutritionist for over 10 years. And after it, and you know, sometimes folks, we never get this, what I'm about to share. Some folks get it after a certain amount of times. Some folks get it right out of the gate. It took me a little bit of time in practice, you know, transitioning from being a strength conditioning coach at a university to having my own clinical practice. But you know, we have this tendency in health when we're a healthcare practitioner to tell people to do what you're doing, right? Whatever's working for you as a practitioner, if you think keto is great, you have the people do keto. If you think, you know, vegan diet's the best diet, you have people do vegan diet. If you have people, you know, if you're doing paleo, you have people do paleo. The list goes on and on. It's just a natural human tendency to have folks do what you what you're doing. And it took a little bit of time, but I ultimately realized that I really had to do what was right for the person, but not just that, do what's right for this person right now where they are in their life. And that is likely going to change. And so, you know, this is quite some time, this is over a decade ago, and we really start to look at unique metabolic profiles, you know, and catering things to your, what we call this unique metabolic fingerprint. And so just diving in and finding about all aspects of this person's life, you know, asking all the questions, doing the things that aren't typically done in conventional medicine. And so, you know, of course, a lot of physicians were just funneling people to me for this particular purpose because I would take the time with them. You know, unfortunately, the system is set up in such a way that most practitioners, whether they want, you know, they get into the field to help people, you know, it's these five to 10 minute in and out office visits, and they often don't even know the root cause of the patient's issues. And so I started to ask people about their sleep. It took, again, the point I'm making is it took me about five years before I started really opening my mind up and asking about all the things that don't seem like they relate to nutrition, right? So I would ask people about their sleep quality or asking about their relationships and, you know, their stress levels and all these things. And we had phenomenal success, you know, even prior to that, we were seeing about 79, 80% when folks are coming on type 2 diabetic, they're on metformin, insulin, et cetera, being able to normalize their blood sugar without medication. Same thing with hypertension. You know, they're on lisinopril and statins and all that stuff. Same thing. It was some, somewhere around 75, 80%. But that 20% of folks who weren't getting the results really bothered me a lot. And it's, it's typical in healthcare to think that the person is just not doing what you're saying, you know. But oftentimes, these folks are working harder than everybody else. And yet they're not getting the results. And so, you know, once I found out, for example, how much sleep was influencing their blood sugar or even our body composition, man, it just really, once I started to help people to implement simple strategies to improve their sleep quality, 
finally, like we start to see 90% success rate. You know, folks have been struggling with weight loss for 20 years. Finally, the weight comes off and stays off. And so the point with getting to the sh- to, to starting my show is that after a certain amount of time of doing this work, day in, day out, seeing one person after the other, basically, you know, helping them to reverse engineer their illness, I just felt like I need to tell more people, right? And I would have people there in my office and I'm, you know, just say they have type two diabetes and I actually reverse engineer the condition. You know, I had this like image of a, of a pancreas and liver and all these things on the board and to see their eyes light up when they start to understand how their beta cells work in their pancreas and how, you know, quote, you know, sugar, when we're, when we're eating, you know, carbohydrates, sugar, um, starchy foods, how does that actually end up as sugar in our bloodstream? How does that actually influence insulin? All this stuff. I saw their eyes light up. I saw them feel empowered. It's just like they actually understand what's happening in their body. And so I'm just like, I need to write this down or I need to record this or something. And eventually that's what we started doing and, you know, created the model health show. And, you know, as you mentioned, I'm blown away. I'm from, (laughs) I'm from the Midwest, which isn't known as like the, the Mecca of health in the world. All right. And so, but to have the number one health show in the country, just like, it is really surreal for me. And I think a big part of that is that education part. But the thing that I left out and just for any health professionals listening as well, any coaches, the thing that I left out that we were doing right out of the gate, which I really wasn't intentional about, was making it fun and making it easy to understand what are often these very complex, unnecessarily complex health issues, right? So in the last little piece I'm going to share is on average, when we've got a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, just gold standard, proving the efficacy of, say, something like curcumin, right? Curcumin, which is the, one of the bioactives in turmeric. We've got a randomized placebo-controlled trial demonstrating, matter of fact, we've got multiple, demonstrating that turmeric has anti-angiogenesis properties, right? So that, what that means is it, it cuts off, it's able to cut off the blood supply selectively to cancer cells, all right? Powerful stuff. Once we have proof of that, it takes on average 17 years for it to become something used in clinical practice. It makes no sense at the age of the internet that it would take that long to have proof of something's efficacy that can be helping somebody right now for it to be used in conventional clinical settings. And so what I wanted to do was to to shorten that gap, to take the data and make it make sense. Because when you're going through and looking at these studies, unfortunately, it's written in a language of academia. And it's a language, it's like a foreign language. And if you don't speak the language, then it's just going to be very difficult to understand and to extract anything from it. And it's often written unnecessarily complex because they're trying to impress other academics. And so taking these very complex subjects and making them understandable, like for example, what learning really is, is taking something that you already know and creating a connection to something that you don't know, right? So when I talk about in Eat Smarter, for example, how your metabolism actually works, which is crazy to say this is the first book to take people behind the scenes and actually teach them how their metabolism works. How does the process of fat loss actually work? Where does fat go when you lose it? Does it go to another dimension? Like, is this multiverse stuff? You know, like, what is, how, how does it all work? 
But taking that, taking this very complex and seemingly complex process, but how does that relate to going to the movies? How can I make those two things connect, right? Like everybody's been to the movies or they've been to a play. And so I take people through a metabolic theater, right? So what I want to encourage everybody to do is when you're learning these things, thinking about number one, how can I teach this to somebody else? Number two, how can I make it fun and relatable? And number three, how can I make it empowering? You know, and this is, can be a recipe for, for big, big change in our health and in our society. Oh my goodness. I love that so much. We're so similar. That's like the exact reason that I have this show is just an incessant need to understand topics and, you know, question people who know it better than I do about it. And then, you know, share the findings with listeners. And then 100% we're also unique. And that's why I also love bringing on people from all different perspectives and just letting it be known that the one thing I know is that I know nothing and that different things work for different people. That was the feelings that I had when I read Eat Smarter because like you, I love binge reading PubMed studies and it is written in a different language. When I was reading Eat Smarter and you were talking about the metabolism, I was like, oh my goodness, this is what I'm reading about in scientific studies, but I haven't really seen it in a popular book format until now, which was just so incredibly exciting to me. So here's a a question for you, because you talked about all of the different factors, like it's so unique and there are all these different factors that affect metabolism. To what extent, let's use diet for an example, to what extent is it a chicken and egg situation? And what I mean by that is like with the gut microbiome, for example, we often see that, and you talk about this in the book, that the gut microbiome can change based on what we're eating, but then a messed up gut microbiome can also create the issues that we're experiencing. So when it does come to diet, how much do you think it's chicken and egg with what we're eating compared to all these other hormones and all these other factors involved? Oh, that's such a good question. Let me start off with demonstrating exactly how much our microbiome, which, you know, we want to make this much more visceral. You know, this is one of the topics, of course, like everybody, microbiome is on the tip of everybody to- everybody's tongue. And let's make it more tangible and, and actionable. And how does this relate to our, to our metabolism and our body composition? And one of the things that I kind of break down, and I'll just give a summation here, any smarter, and this was highlighted in the journal Cell, and they discovered that there's a certain strain of bacteria that actually can block your intestines from absorbing as many calories from your food, all right? But this was done on, on mice. Let's be clear first, all right? Then we'll get to the human studies. So they discovered a specific bacteria in mice that can block their intestines from absorbing as many calories from their food. And I said us because, of course, you know, a lot of these trials are done using animal models. And unfortunately, when you look through the lens of conventional training or conventional medicine, when you find out there's a bacteria that can block the intestines from absorbing as many calories, the thing that you jump to is how can I turn this into a drug? How can I bottle this up so that I can block people's intestines so they can eat whatever they want and block their intestines from absorbing as many calories, right? That's the dream. Now, unfortunately, it's looking at things through the lens of this term that we have today, which is called, quote, side effects and looking at the human body in parts, right? So for example, when folks are coming in and they come in and they've got their list of medications they're on. You know, they're on lisinopril, they're on Celebrex for pain. 
and they're on a statin, right? Statins for a while, which still are, but for a while, they were the hottest thing on the streets. All right. Statins, like everybody, they were passing them out like candy. There was even some legislation to get statins into the water supply. A little fun fact. But, you know. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation. I did not know that. Mind blown. Maybe we could circle back to that. But it's just because it just seemed to be so, so important because we want to, you know, deal with cholesterol in our society. But as I digress, so people coming in on statins, like regularly. We'll just say if they're a new patient coming in, maybe 70% of folks, it was crazy. And early on, now anybody can find this data, but early on, I saw some concerning data around being on a statin and increasing the incidence of developing diabetes. And now anybody can go to Dr. Google and look this up, but you know, we come to find out getting on a statin increases your risk of developing diabetes by 30%. And the reason that this is, is that when we take something that's supposed to be targeting our cholesterol, right? Every single thing that we're taking a medication for, it doesn't just affect one thing. Your body doesn't work in compartments. Everything is connected. So if you take something that's targeting your heart, it's also going to affect your joints. If you take something that's targeting your pancreas or your, your blood sugar, or you're taking something that targets your thyroid, it's going to affect your brain. Nothing works in a vacuum. There are no, there's no such thing as side effects. These are direct effects. Every single thing we take and we're exposed to affects everything about us. All right. So that is the foundation of what I'm about to share. So we don't want to get into that allopathic thinking of like, just give me that bacteria because when you take, we'll just say it, it becomes weaponized as a drug to block people's intestines from absorbing calories. What does that do? to your microbiome's ability to produce short-chain fatty acids, right? SCAFAs that protect your gut lining, that have important implications for your cognitive function, that help to pr protect against autoimmune diseases. Are we going to damage that when we start to damage this microbiome ratio by blocking your intestines from absorbing as many calories, by changing your microbiome cascade? And what about the vitamins, minerals, you know, I mentioned scaphas, your, your microbes create vitamins and minerals in you for you. So maybe now you're not producing enough B12. The list goes on and on. So here's the point. So I want to use this as a foundation. Now here's where we get to the visceral part of this. So, and how does this affect directly in human studies? Well, researchers at the Wiseman Institute, and this is what I would see also in my clinical practice is there is a very specific microbiome makeup that's associated with obesity, insulin resistance, and excess body fat. And we also have a microbiome that's associated with leanness, the makeup of the microbiome, the microbes. And so I could have somebody send out for a stool sample at, with never seeing them a day in my life. And I can get their report back and I can know with extreme accuracy whether or not they're obese, just based on their microbiome makeup. And so these researchers knew this and they took fecal samples from people who had a microbiome that was associated with obesity, and they implanted that fecal sample into lean mice. And then they took a fecal sample from humans who had a lean microbiome cascade and, and, and implanted that into lean mice. Those mice stayed the same, even though they're eating the same diet. The mice who received the fecal transplant from folks who had the 
microbiome associated with obesity, even though they're eating the same diet, suddenly these mice became insulin resistant by changing their microbes. Suddenly the mice gained weight. Suddenly the mice gained specifically body fat simply by changing their microbes. Last part of this, and you know, being that I'm from St. Louis, this is one of the most incredible universities in the country, but it's, it's located in St. Louis. It's Washington University School of Medicine. They set out to find if microbiome changes could affect fat loss in a set in sets of identical twins. Right now, this you don't get any better contrast in comparison than identical twins. Right, they, everything about them is the same, except they. Funny enough, you know, they do have different fingerprints, and I use this term metabolic fingerprint as well. So the prerequisite was to find a twin that had the microbiome associated with obesity and one that had a microbiome associated with leanness, even though they're identical. And sure enough, they discovered if one twin had a higher ratio of a bacteria category called Firmicutes and a lower ratio of bacteriodetes, they ended up absorbing more calories from their food, even though they're eating the same thing, than their twin. And they were more likely to gain fat while eating the same diet. All right. So this is the overarching point is that your microbes matter. Your microbes are one of the things that I term an epicaloric controller. Your microbes determine, they're one of the factors that determine whether or not you're absorbing calories from your food. It's going beyond the calories in, calories out paradigm because there are factors that control what calories do in your body. And so the chicken or the egg, and, and you know, the last point with this is and I think you know this as well, just like they go hand in hand. They're really inseparable. Like those are, these are the debates that can go on and on forever, but we need to look at things from both angles. You know, the things that we're doing to damage our micro microbiome, which, you know, there's, we can definitely dive in and talk about that, but coming into the situation with the healthy microbiome in the first place, how does that happen? You know, so to protect us against fat gain, and what we've seen is that over time, by the way that we eat as a culture, by the, the things that we're exposed to as a culture, you know, one of the things that I shared and kind of highlighted in Eat Smarter was because we have data on this now, we have a lot of very eye-opening data on how pesticides and rodenticides and herbicides damage your microbiome, specifically creating damage to the genes of your microbes. All right. This is serious business, serious stuff, because 99, over 99% of our genes that we carry are not our genes. They're our, the genes of our microbes. All right. If, we go, if we're going gene for gene, of course, we are much bigger, but gene for gene, over 99% of our genes are not, quote, human. You know, they're from the microbes we carry. And what the researchers discovered was that looking at the microbes the microbiome makeup of somebody eating more of an indigenous kind of diet, they're eating you know, more of a hunter-gatherer diet, closer to just to how we evolve, they have on average four times more bacteria, four times more species of microbes than the person eating the average Western diet, right? And just to say, I'm just going to throw this out there. These are not exact numbers. Just say I have 10,000 species of microbes in my gut. A person eating a natural human diet or something closer to what would be a natural human diet we evolved with have 40,000 species, right? And so what the research has noted is that as your diversity of microbes goes down, your rate of obesity goes up. As your diversity of microbes goes down, your rate of insulin resistance goes up. As your diversity of microbes goes down, 
The rate of heart disease goes up. The list goes on and on. There's an inverse relationship as we lose species of bacteria. And so, of course, we could talk about some things to help to improve this ratio, but you know, that's a lot to unpack, but I hope that it gives a good summation. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. I love it. I'm so impressed that you brought it all back to the original question. I forgot (laughs) about the chicken and egg. I have a super, super random question. I'm so fascinated by by the microbiome and the studies. And have you seen the studies where even when patients are given dead probiotic strains, that it still has effects on our body? Okay, so you're opening a door here that... 
this topic is so beyond. I love how you talked about earlier. And I just, I just heard this quote on a song. There's so many things I want to say. It's like the matrix right now. There's so many things I want to say. So many things to choose from. There's a song that I just heard that says, the wise man knows a wise man knows nothing. All right. We know so little. We know so little about how everything works. Like we're spinning around in the middle of the universe, like on a glorified snow globe. Like our bodies are literally, all the elements that make up our bodies came from stars, like a supernova. It's just, there's, we're just trying to be less dumb. All right. That's what the process really is right now. And that's okay. You know, there's this beautiful thing throughout, throughout history, you know, great minds have just really gotten to a point where they just realize, like, man, like we'll, we, we know nothing, we know nothing and being content with that, but this should not inhibit our ability to discover, to explore, because the truth is whatever your truth is, you know, there's nothing more powerful than that. You know, so now I'm saying that to say that this conversation today, even about bacteria, and by the way, so we've discovered bacteria frozen for thousands of years that's still active. You can still put in a, uh, a culture and they can replicate thousands of years. They should be dead, quote, dead, but that's not how it works. They're like Captain America coming out of the ice, you know, and the same thing with viruses, you know, viruses are the most, and, and again, anybody, anything that I say, I encourage folks to go and look up because it's just really amazing. We have more virus particles in our world or on the planet than literally anything else. There is nothing even remotely close to the number of virus particles in on, on our bodies and on planet Earth in general. We have over 400 trillion bi- virus particles in and on our bodies right now. But these are considered to be, they're non-living, but they kind of are. You know, it's just like this very interesting nuance because this thing, this non-living entity can literally jump in and take, like jump into the captain's chair of your cells and take over, you know, but it's kind of, it's a strange like zombie, maybe this is why we're so obsessed with zombie movies and shows, I don't know, but it's kind of like this, that kind of process, you know, and a little fun fact too is that the human immune system itself it has derived from viruses. It's built on viruses. Not that viruses helped it to develop, but it literally, just like our mitochondria, the best theory that we have is that our mitochondria is how bacteria integrated with our human cells and became a symbiotic relationship. That's what happened with our immune system. We developed an immune system, a virus. We, ha- we had a virus that faced off against other viruses to, be, to develop the highly sophisticated human immune system that we have today. And, you know, actually when they mapped out the Human Genome Project, which again, they thought that we were going to have hundreds of thousands of genes to, that shows our vast diversity and our, our overbearing dominance in the animal kingdom. But it was like 20,000 genes. There are some, you know, insects that have more genes than us. But what they did discover, of course, is that, you know, epigenetic influences, you know, a single gene can do, th- there can be thousands of different outcomes from a single gene. but the point being that when they mapped out the human genome, they discovered that our genome, the human genome, the makeup of humans, we are approximately 8% endogenous retroviruses ourselves. The human genome itself is 8% virus, all right? 
And this is something that's non-living. You know, it's just, there's so much nuance there. So I'm sorry, you just opened up like a whole can of worms for me with that, with that question. It's so remarkable. And again, we know so little of how all this stuff works, but the things that we do know are pretty cool. I'm so excited at this moment. I am haunted by the concept of what drives a virus. I had on David Sinclair on the show and I was like, please just explain to me, like, what is motivating a virus to do what it's doing compared to a bacteria? And why do we call a bacteria, quote, alive and a virus not alive? I'm just so fascinated by this whole topic. So speaking about epigenetics and still staying in this this world of the microbiome, do you think our DNA has a like a recorded genetic awareness pre-exposure even necessarily to these microbes of these different microbes? Like what I mean by that, I'm going back to the study about how even a dead probiotic has an effect on the immune system, which suggests to me that the immune system has an idea about what that bacteria means to it. I'm getting a little bit esoterical, but where do you think the knowledge of the body lies in regards to the microbiome? And do you think with that knowledge that, and it kind of goes back to what you're talking about, about us being all individual, does that mean some people are destined to only have a quote, good relationship with a certain type of microbiome and a certain type of diet? Or do you think anybody could adapt any diet and then the microbiome and the immune system would kind of adjust accordingly? I love this question so much. All right. So just to pivot back for one second, this one of the studies that I mentioned earlier, I don't know if I mentioned where the study came from, but it was published in the journal Nature. And it revealed that the more diverse microbiome that we can have, the more diversity we have is associated with the greater number of health benefits. And again, as our diversity goes up, our body weight tends to go down. As our diversity of microbes goes up, insulin resistance tends to, tends to go down. And with that said, humans evolved. If we look at, again, any humans who are, again, more living like an indigenous type of, of lifestyle, right? So closer to their origin, we see this vast array of microbe diversity that we simply don't have. And also, one of the little interesting things that I talked about in Eat Smarter is how, and this was one of the coolest and crazy studies, and this was from researchers at Stanford, discovered that gut microbes and digestion are cyclical and in sync with seasons and environmental conditions. Like we've been doing this a very long time. So like you mentioned, even a, a dead, quote, dead or inactive microbe exposure, any of these things can still have an impact on its associated with its association with human cells. We're used to having a diverse exposure to different microbes, which we don't have today, which is a big part of the reason that we are so susceptible to disease, so susceptible to infections. We are not well here in the United States. We're not. Honestly, we're the sickest nation in in human history, self-inflicted. I'm not talking about, you know, bad water. I'm talking about self-inflicted chronic diseases. You know, the Journal of the American Medical Association, this was 2018, which we knew this already, but now we got data, which we just bring people back to the data because it tends to cut through. They affirm that poor diet is the number one cause of our, of our epidemic of chronic diseases. I just checked out the most recent data yesterday. We have about 240 million Americans are overweight or obese. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. 43% of Americans are clinically obese. 
We're on track within the next couple of years here, and COVID has helped a lot with getting this number there quicker. We're almost at 50%, which is in the next couple of years, 50% of our society is clinically obese. Obesity every year, every year. So first of all, obesity is connected to 60 different chronic diseases. And every year, over 400,000 people die with issues related to obesity. And you hardly hear a word about it, right? About 50 to 60% of the U.S. population has an advanced degree of some type of heart disease as well. 125 to 130 million Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic right now. It's insane. You know, in our, this, this is the part, this invisible world, we're afraid of something invisible, but the invisible world within our bodies, we're not giving a lot of attention to unless you're in the know. But even then it's still just like kind of here today, gone today. We're not really understanding how important this is, you know, with understanding our microbes and how we associate with the world. And so, you know, just going back to that question and what I would say is, you know, we're, we're used to a lot of exposure of different microbes. Cyclical exposure of microbes. Now, could we change and adjust to a different diet? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, we can. However, is it optimal? That's where the debate can happen, you know, because obviously most of us here in this, even if we're eating healthy, it might not be what your genes expect you to eat, you know, like your closest ancestors, for example, you know, if somebody, my wife's from Kenya, for example. You know, she's got a much closer association to her diet than I do here in the United States. You know, I'm not as close to my lineage. And so, you know, somebody, if you got a family who's coming over from Italy, right? What, what have your ancestors been eating for centuries? If you're connected to that or even thousand years or so, right? Maybe eating closer to that is going to help to proliferate certain microbes that really protect you against illness that you know, and you know, David Sinclair is a friend as well that you mentioned, these longevity genes, right? So because our microbes have a lot of interaction with what's happening with our genetic expression. So yes, we can definitely adapt and change to different, I mean, humans are freaking resilient. Like we're just resilient to different diets, even terrible diets. We can be so messed up. We can have all the things, you know, we could have diabetes, we could smoke every day and still live to be 70, 80 years old, all right? It's, we're incredibly resilient, but that's where we get into this conversation of you're not living longer, you're dying longer, you know, and quality of life, you know, and actually feeling good and having all of these incredible benefits of being here in this human form, you know, and in this opportunity. So yes, to answer the question, yes, we definitely can adapt to different diets and our, micro, our microbes will inherently change because, and here's the point, this is a big takeaway for everybody as well. When talking about, okay, so how do we do this? How do we improve the diversity of our microbes and make us more adaptable to different dietary inputs, for example, right? This term called metabolic flexibility. This is largely based on your microbes. And so what I'm about to say, people have heard about, but we're going to dive deeper into it. We put these microbes in this category of probiotics, right? Probiotics for life is what the word means, probiotics. Sounds good. And early on in my clinical practice, I was putting everybody on probiotics. And again, this is like 15 years ago that I was doing that, but I was really missing the point. You can take, and I was getting people these, like it took like three years of fermentation to make these like fancy pants probiotics, but it's not going. You're making them yourself? 
No, no, no. It was this really wonderful company. No, yeah, I'm not like, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, here's the point. It's going to be not totally wasted, but largely wasted on your body. These probiotics cannot proliferate and colonize in your gut if they don't have their source of food to eat, if they don't have their, quote, prebiotics. This is the food for our microbes. So if we want to improve our microbiome ratio and improve our number of species of microbes, we have to improve our intake of prebiotics. And so you can go to Dr. Google and look up prebiotics and it's going to be things like artichoke, Jerusalem artichoke, asparagus, onions, garlic. But even with that, we're really missing the point. And the point is this, every single real food functions metabolically as a prebiotic, right? Every single real food functions as a prebiotic, all right? So the number one thing that we see in the data, and again, I shared a peer-reviewed study in Eat Smarter to affirm this, is that the number one thing we can do to improve our microbiome species, the number of species, is to simply improve the number of foods that we're eating, the number of different types of foods. Because, and I know some people listening, even if we're eating a healthy diet and we're feeling good and we're eating, you know, things that we enjoy, we're winning, we can tend to get caught in this meal prep gone awry where we're eating the same things over and over and over again, right? And now here's the thing, and I've seen this countless times, we can do that and get great results. Everything's going well for, we'll just say for a year. Then all of a sudden the weight starts creeping back on. All of a sudden we start maybe having some kind of a, a, you know, strange allergy that developed or some arthritic symptoms, the list goes on and on, not realizing that behind the scenes, our microbes are literally moving out because they're not getting fed the prebiotics that they need to stay in our system, to proliferate. So number one thing we could do is to simply increase the number of different foods that we're eating, you know, just so just be more intentional about it, right? So each week, maybe eat two different foods, for example, something simple as that. Now, the last part is this. This is so simple, but so powerful. How do we increase those microbe species directly from eating different foods? When you eat a real food, you're eating that food's microbiome. When you eat a food, you're eating that food's microbiome. A berry has a microbiome. An avocado has a microbiome. Kale has a microbiome. Whatever real food you can name. A Twinkie? I don't know. I don't know. Possibly this, maybe that's where you get the mutant strains of, you know, whatever microbes. But when you eat a real food, you're taking on that food's microbiome and and, and incorporating it into your own matrix. It's so powerful, so powerful when you start to see through that lens. And so we need prebiotics to allow our probiotics to proliferate and colonize and create postbiotics. So they're creating all of these beneficial compounds in us for us, but it starts with the foundation of the prebiotics. I'm never going to look at the word prebiotic the same way again. I hadn't thought about that, but really technically every food, unless it's like, I don't know if plastic can feed gut bacteria, as long as it's capable of feeding bacteria, it technically would be a prebiotic. If a person can eat organic, are you a fan of not washing the fruits and vegetables to get more of the species? All right. This is another great question. Oh, I love this. So 
<laughs> All right. One of the biggest misconceptions and and I don't, I'm not a big fan of misconceptions. I want us to all be right. All right. I don't want to just like, especially when people just they're doing something, they think it's benefiting, you know, because there might be like a, a placebo effect to it, you know. But this idea of using a veggie wash and like washing your your berries off and getting rid of, you know, helping to wash off pesticides, for example, that is simply not how it works. It's simply not how science works. And I've like I've done so much research and also sharing study after study after study on this and working with some of the top people in the country on these subject matters. We'll just use chlorpyrifos, for example, right? Chlorpyrifos, one of the most widely used pesticides. We have peer-reviewed evidence on people being exposed, you know, farmers being exposed to chlorpyrifos and the radical incidents, for example, pregnant women. Radical, it's it's scary. And when you go and like, you know, see some of the documentaries that have been done around this, ah, but radically increase in incidence of having oh so difficult to talk about. Ah, having developmental issues for their children. So their their babies being born with defects specifically of their brain and their nervous system. Chlorpyrifos is is just terrible. It's a it's it's a neurogenic pesticide that's designed to disrupt the nervous system of pests, not understanding that this very small thing that is trying to kill and disrupt the nervous system, we are made of very small things. We're made of these things. And now having real world data affirming how chlorpyrifos and other pesticides, which there are over 50,000 pesticides approved by our environmental protection agency to be used in the growing of our food. This, so, this agency that's supposed to be protecting the environment, protecting you, you're part of the environment. It's just unbelievable. It's so, so corrupt, but that's a whole other story. So seeing that, that this is happening, you know, in populations being exposed to chlorpyrifos and damaging their microbiome, not just that, but of course, the developmental issues and also skyrocketing rates of miscarriages. All right. So having this exposure over time, but the food itself that's being grown with this stuff these chemicals are integrated itself into the food itself, just like it would do with us. It becomes a part of our tissue matrix. All right. And we are very, we are very evolved to where we have a dynamic system of eliminating toxins. Not everything. Some stuff can get caught up in our, in our tissues. Some stuff can get caught up in our, in our liver. For example, your liver really takes the brunt of exposure from environmental toxins. So it's integrated itself into the, into the berry itself. It's a part of the strawberry matrix, you know, the, the, the cellular makeup of that strawberry. We can't wash it off with a fancy veggie wash. It's integrated itself with the strawberry itself. So it's a very superficial idea. All right. So cleaning stuff off, that kind of thing. Now to, to the original question of well, what about, you know, the microbes washing it off? I don't see that as an issue at all. You know, if you're getting some organic berries, especially, you know, if you're getting from a farmer's market or, you know, organic section, whatever. Yeah, I mean, especially just with that borderline healthy immune system, our immune system is designed to specifically target and regulate the exposure to pathogens. If everything's working well, like getting into your stomach, the stomach acid is not a pretty place to be for microbes, right? That the body does not want. Let's be clear. 
And so also just the pro- your, the majority of your immune system, as many folks have said, but to really get this today, the majority of your immune system is located in your gastrointestinal tract. It's, the, it's there for a reason. We're designed like that for a reason because through our evolution, what you put into your mouth could potentially kill you very quickly. So your immune system needs to be there front and center to make sure that what you're bringing in is okay. And a lot of folks don't realize this, that when you eat a meal, we actually have an increase in stress hormones because again, this is a somewhat stressful event. Like your body has to really take a, put a lot of energy towards making sure that what just came in isn't going to kill you. That's the kind of negative side. But on the positive side is it's there front and center, your microbes, this incredible process of taking that food. And now the energy is being used to turn this food into you. So it's turning, we've been just saying strawberries. Now we're going to turn these strawberries into human tissue. Man, that's like freaking David Blaine stuff. Like that's like David Copperfield cellular like magic. But this is why it requires so much energy and the immune system needs to be there, you know, front and center to make sure that everything is going according to plan. It's so mind-blowing. I have two questions that both relate that go different pathways. I guess first, speaking of what we are bringing in, so you spoke a lot about, you know, evolutionarily what we are adapted to. And one of the things that I loved in Eat Smarter was your very nuanced perspective of something that I think is often well, I'll just ask you, what are your thoughts on grains? <laughs> you tell a really great story about, you know, being put on a certain sort of restrictive dietary protocol at one point and being encouraged by a practitioner to bring back certain foods that are often deemed toxic overall, like grains, legumes, and at least in like the paleo <laughs> world. What are your thoughts on grains? It's a great question as well. So yeah, I was saying one of the analogies, like there's two sides to every slice, right? There's two sides to every slice. And the the people who really educated the public, which is massively needed on some of the potential, even deadly effects of the consumption of grains, especially this very hybridized dwarf wheat, you know, it's conventional wheat that folks are eating, you know, Dr. William Davis, Dr. David Perlmutter, Dr. Stephen Gundry, who's just at my house the other day. You know, he's the lectin guy. He's brought lectins to the forefront. These are all my friends. I'm interviewing him pretty soon. I'm so excited. Dr. Gundry. Oh, the energy paradox is new one. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. All right. So, yeah, you know, so these are all my friends and colleagues. I love these guys. But there again, there's two sides to every slice. And one of the, you know, of course, I break down the, the potential hazard here. And this was one of the things I saw a lot of success with in my clinical practice, just getting people off grains because there's no, but there's no nuance there. You know, there's no nuance. One of the studies that I shared in Eat Smarter was how, which is, I I like to look at the dynamics that people might overlook that are very visceral. And so one of them was this really interesting peer-reviewed study on how the consumption of gluten was creating leptin resistance in people, right? So leptin is this glorified leader of our hunger and satiety hormone teams. It's the, it's the leader of the satiety hormones. And we can dive in and you know, just spend a bunch of time talking about leptin, but leptin is actually produced by your fat cells 
to and to basically inform your 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 tissue matrix, your brain, your just your system overall that you're satisfied that you've got enough in stock. And you would think if you've got a lot of fat that you and you're producing a lot of leptin, which folks who are obese they have a lot of leptin, but the receptor sites it's kind of like a metabolic DM, a metabolic email coming in, and once you accumulate enough fat tissue and you've got the, all this leptin being produced, it's kind of like that message to stop eating starts to go to spam, right? It's not actually getting picked up because there's a down regulation in the receptor sites for leptin. One of the things that can superficially or artificially or just kind of encourage this to happen is uh, gluten can damage the function with your leptin sensitivity. So again, another reason why we have this ravenous kind of uh, chronic hunger cravings, all these things associated with, with gluten that we now know about. So, you know, I do break down that science and, and, and how all this stuff works, but then there's another side. As a matter of fact, I'll share one other little piece, which I know somebody's probably already talked about on your show before, but I just want to share this. And any smarter, and this was in the, the British Journal of Nutrition. So it was the British Journal of Nutrition, one of the most prestigious journals, especially targeting food, found that there's a lectin in wheat called wheat germ agglutinin, which again, a lot of people have probably talked about, WGA. And the crazy thing about it is that it's able to basically punch its way through your gut lining intact and enter your system circulation in your body. It's very abnormal. It just gets in there and just starts like Mike Tyson in your gut lining. And to the point that, you know, this can start to kind of break down the doors of your intestinal lumen and, and create you know, where other stuff is able to get into your system, it's going to set off an immune response, you know, and then we get into molecular mimicry and inflammation and autoimmunity and all that stuff. So again, clearly there are issues with lectins, with WGA, with gluten, the list goes on and on, but there's another side to the slice. All right. So yeah, a few years ago, how long ago was this? Maybe about seven years ago. Because of me using my body as a walking, talking laboratory and experimenting with all of these different diets, you know, and again, man, I've done, I've done so much. I've done so much crazy stuff. Like you, you, it's unbelievable. All the different diet protocols, but I'll, I won't just do it for a week or two or a month. I'll do it for a year or two or five and see what happens, you know, and I do not recommend that, especially if. You know, there's good science showing that it's not healthy long term, for example. But anyways, I created unknowingly because the science of the microbiome really at that time, I was just starting to look at that in my clinical practice, just starting to, you know, use stools, you know, sending people to get stool samples, all that stuff. But it started for me because come to find out I had some dysbiosis, which this is one of the biggest, if not the biggest underlying epidemic driving so many problems. Now you might have direct gastrointestinal tract, you know, pain, pain, bloating, discomfort. But then on the other side, you might not have any symptoms at all related to what you would think if you have like a, a, you know, it used to just be called a quote tummy ache, but now it's got all these different names, you know, IBS, et cetera, et cetera. But you might have skin issues relating to this dysbiosis. You might have developed rheumatoid arthritis. You might develop 
thyroid issues, you know, the list goes on and on. Your symptoms, this goes back to our genetic uniqueness and how these epigenetic influences affect us as an individual. And so anyways, so I was dealing with this gut dysbiosis and I was working alongside a physician friend of mine. And (laughs) at this time I had taken on uh, this, I had done a few years of a vegan protocol, a couple years of raw food protocol, a couple years of paleo protocol. I think I might've been doing keto protocol this time. I don't remember which protocol I was on, but I had pulled out all grains, you know, and, and legumes. And the physician that I was working with, after he looked at my micro cascade and I looked at it, we was like, okay, yeah, we see there's some dysbiosis. And for me, it's like, okay, just take the probiotics, get the things to try to like dominate and get the other stuff out of there. But it's the prebiotics, right? It's the prebiotic aspect. And my guy was like, well, Sean, I'm, I'm going to recommend that you add in some, some beans and some sprouted bread. And I was just like, in my head, I'm just like, no way, I'm not doing that. And so what I did was I did everything but that. I did, took the probiotics. I took, you know, some kind of, and this is again, catered to me, some different, very specific targeting the overgrowth of microbes that I had, unfriendly flora. So antibiotic for that as well. But this doesn't have to be, you know, a pharmaceutical. There's, you know, quote, natural versions of antibiotics. So I was doing all the things, but I didn't add in the prebiotic strains that come to find out later, these particular bacteria that I was really low on loved that prebiotic. And so just to share with you guys, and this was published in the peer-reviewed journal, Microbial Ecology and Health and Disease, gut biosis involves the breakdown of pivotal mutualistic relationship between gut bacteria, their metabolic parts, and our immune system. All right. So to put it directly, I had an overgrowth of opportunistic bacteria and was lacking on key friendly strains of bacteria that helped to keep them in check. And I came back in, I got retested after maybe it was about a month and there wasn't much difference. I did, I was already feeling better. Like my gastrointestinal, you know, pain and bloating. And the reason that I knew that this was happening was that my food sensitivities, I started to like, I would eat a meal and start to feel discomfort. And so I started to like, just eliminating all these foods until I got to the point where I was afraid. I had some fear about eating. You know, I was just eating my safe foods and it was just not normal. It was not okay. What I did was, okay, so I listened to him, I relented, and then I added in some beans. But I looked at, and this is what, you know, my friend, Dr. Stephen Gundry talks about. Number one, using a pressure cooker. Number two, what if they're sprouted? So this helps to reduce dramatically, and I share many studies on this, the lectins and the anti-nutrients that are in these food products. All right. So I started adding in some beans and I was doing the sprouted grain bread. Like I'd have like a, you know, couple slices a few times a week. And man, I retested and my gut makeup was incredible. And all my symptoms were gone. They've been gone since. And that was something I was dealing with for like two years on and off. And when I added these foods in, and again, if I didn't do this firsthand, I would not believe it. You know, because there's just too much negativity attached to those foods. I, d- I just didn't see them as being helpful or even curative for anybody. 
Now, what I would automatically go to is like, well, there had to be some other foods to do it. Well, these were pretty damn easy, you know, and I didn't have any side effects, just positive benefit personally. This is why we have to do what's right. We cannot think that our way of doing things is going to be best for everybody. And then going screaming from the mountaintops that everybody should never eat beans again. When again, my wife is from Kenya, you know, so they've got, there's a lot of uh, Indian synergy in the cultures as well. They've been eating beans for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Then we get into the conversation about, well, the, the advent of agriculture and what that did to us. Well, again, these are, there's things that have nuance there. And so uh, just to share this really quickly for everybody, this was published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry found that simply sprouting the grains is an effective way to dramatically reduce phytic acid and increase the nutrient absorption, which that's another thing I was worried about is, is it's going to block my nutrient absorption of other things, you know, like zinc, for example. And also I mentioned WGA earlier. This was in the journal Nutrients found that levels of WGA are completely undetectable in cooked whole wheat products. So yeah, it's just like, there's a lot of nuance there that's not talked about. This, this is not an advocation to go and start like making sandwiches right now. All right. But this is just something that, again, we need to look at the other side, the potential benefit for some folks in general. I mean, I don't definitely don't eat a lot of bread very often now. I just don't need, I don't feel I need to, and it's just not drawn to that kind of food but I'm not averse to it either. Everything is an option. If it has a root of human use for thousands of years, it's still an option in my mind. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. 
Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. 
And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible 
and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I really, really love that perspective. And I think it, I think it will really resonate with a lot of listeners, especially what you were saying about the food fear and the restrictive diets that people get into. And it can be very, very overwhelming. So even if that doesn't straight up convince people to, (laughs) to jump on the legume or even potentially sprouted grain train, maybe it will have them thinking about the potential of it. So a huge topic I would love to dive deep into you were talking about the magic of our bodies and the ability to turn, you know, a strawberry or a Twinkie into, you know, our body's cells. A huge part of your book, Eat Smarter, is like what literally happens and how what we eat becomes fat. And also on the flip side, how we burn fat. And one thing I love that you said, it's something I think about all the time. And it's the, honestly, I think it's a travesty that the word fat is used to describe both dietary fat and body fat, even though carbs, carbs can become dietary fat, but we don't call them fat. I think you said something like we call blueberries blue, but they don't, they don't turn us blue. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, oh, there's so much I know, but talk a little bit about, you know, dietary fat versus body fat, body fat communities, how fat, what determines if we use or burn it. There's so much there. So I'll just let you speak whatever resonates or whatever's on your mind? Sure. Yeah. This is a great question. This is like this topic in of itself. Unfortunately, there's an issue here with semantics. There's an issue with language because as you mentioned, 
when I was in college, when I was in my nutritional science class, the big thing at the time, which for years, and it still, it still has, it, has its hooks in so many people, was to recommend the patients you work with to really be careful about eating fat. Low fat everything. Low fat everything. Low fat dairy. It was used by marketers. The thing I was going to say, I'm just going to say it. Marketers really mess up everything, you know? So they just start putting low fat on everything. And there was this, it became a fat phobia. But what it was, it's a leverage point with semantics because there was this belief that if you don't eat fat, if you can reduce the fat that you're consuming, then it's not going to end up as fat on your body. So th- this was seen as the same thing, right? So I don't want to get fat, so I'm not going to eat fat. And that same logic is like thinking that if I eat blueberries, it's going to make me blue. If I eat green beans, it's going to make me green. But that's not how things work biochemically. Like that's just not how the systems work at all. Like not even remotely close. And so with that as a tenant, I think it's been a great disservice to our society. And I'm making, and this is with Eat Smarter, and I'm so grateful when it came out, it was the number one book in the United States for the first couple of days of all books, including fiction. So fiction and nonfiction. And getting this information out to more people and, and having this advocacy. And one of my big missions with this is to change the name of dietary fat to something else so we can end the confusion. That would be amazing. Right? But there's definitely a way. There's definitely a way. It's going to take time, but there's so much fat phobia. And because of that, you know, we could change the name to lipids. We can just call it dietary lipids. We can call it, I don't know, flexies, fats and sexies. I don't know. We can just make up something. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking like come up with like a completely new word. Right. We can come up with a completely new word. We can come up with, you know, just use something that's already there in the science. But the bottom line, we need to change it. We need to change it so that there's no more confusion because fat and food and fat on our bodies are two totally different things, totally different. And so what does that fat look like on our bodies? That's one of the things I really wanted to demystify because one of the biggest issues in our culture, of course, is excess body fat. And this is something that's very attractive for a lot of people is eliminating fat, burning fat, quote, burning fat, and really helping to change their body composition. Not often as it should be for health reasons, but more so for, you know, just we want to look good, you know, like we all want to look good, feel good, you know, so I definitely understand that. But there's an underlying lack of education on the thing that we're trying to target. So we're we're trying to burn fat, but we don't even really know what it is and understand how amazing it is, you know? And so I I broke down, I talked about the different fat cell communities in the book, which some of these I'm going to share folks have heard of, and then maybe I'll throw in a couple that you may not have heard of. But number one, when we're targeting fat, you know, when we're talking about fat loss, we're targeting storage fats. They're called storage fats. And one of them is is subcutaneous fat, or subcutaneous fat. So that's the fat right underneath your skin. It's, you know, the fat on the back of your arms, your your booty, your even you can have some subcutaneous fat on your belly, but this is stuff you can pinch. The fat on your legs, subcutaneous fat. All right. So we've got subcutaneous fat. That's one fat cell community, storage fats. And it's called a storage fat because literally the fat cells themselves get filled with contents. So we can't, when we're burning fat, we're not burning a fat cell. 
we can't indiscriminately kill fat cells. There's certain metabolic processes. We'll just use like hormone-sensitive lipase and lipoprotein lipase. So hormone-sensitive lipase, basically it's like a key opening up that fat cell to get it to release its contents, All right? Lipoprotein lipase is storing, getting the fat cell to open up to store fat. It's a very rudimentary understanding. There's glucagon involved, insulin, all this stuff. But again, I, we, we go through that in depth in the book and make it really, really make sense. But bottom line is we're getting the fat cell to empty its contents so that it can be shuttled to its endpoint to be actually used, quote, burned at the mitochondria. But that's just one endpoint. There's also, there's nuance, there's some other ways, but predominantly getting it to the mitochondria. Here's the thing. You can get the fat cell to open up and release its contents, but it can get reabsorbed somewhere else. You've also got to be able to, you know, complete the process. So anyways, so we've got this fat cell community of subcutaneous fat stored with contents and the fat cell itself is what grows. Your fat cell can grow a hundred times its size filled with stored energy, right? Triglycerides, et cetera. Now, subcutaneous fat. The other type of fat a lot of folks know about is visceral fat, right? Visceral fat, also known as omentum fat, which derived from a, I believe it's Greek or, or Latin, but it means fatty apron, right? So it's like the fat around your belly. It's, it's the deep abdominal fat that really puts a lot of pressure on your internal organs, it's the belly fat that's much more difficult to get a grip on. And so these two types of fat cell communities, and visceral fat is the one that's most identified in the literature, mountains of studies, to be the most dangerous. All right, so high rates of insulin resistance, high rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, the list goes on and on. Visceral fat is something that your body generally doesn't just jump right to making visceral fat, except today, the way that we eat you know, some of the abnormal things that we're eating, but it's kind of like systems of banking where you've got subcutaneous fat, which is the first place to get energy stored. And then like the visceral fat will be a little bit more down the line, but there are processes that can bypass and create more belly fat. Even our sex, you know, men and women store fat differently and, you know, product labels on, you know, your processed food, you know, you're buying doesn't account for any of these things, these differences. So visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, Another type of storage fat is called intramuscular fat, all right, intramuscular fat. And when I was in college, I was taught that fat and muscle are dichotomous, like they're, they have nothing to do with each other. You just want to burn fat and build muscle. But intramuscular fat actually works as on-site energy for your muscles to work. And to get a picture of what that looks like, if you think about the marbling of a steak, that is intramuscular fat. So all three of these are storage fats. And then you can have too much intramuscular fat and you can develop a condition we call chubby muscles, all right? Now, these are all the fat cell communities that we're trying to target. And now here's the beautiful part about it. These fat cell communities are one of the greatest things, one of the greatest evolutionary adaptations that humans have developed. They've kept us alive. It is our ability to store energy and utilize that energy later that has enabled us to become the people that we are today. Our fat is amazing. It's helped us to survive and it has so many different metabolic jobs that it's, that it's doing. The problem that can come up though is that it's very good at doing its job. Right? It's very, it can be very clingy, you know, so especially when it's bombarded with energy, it's just very good at storing it. And it's only going to use that energy when it really needs to. It's just simply doing what it's designed to do, all right? So 
The other fat cell community are the fat cells. So we talked about storage fats. Then we have structural fats in the brain, which is something totally different. You don't burn your brain fat, thankfully. But then we also have the types of fats or fat cell communities that actually burn fat for fuel. And a lot of folks today know about brown adipose tissue. And I've been talking about this for a very long time. You know about it generally in relationship to like cold thermogenesis, for example, but your nutrition this is what we dive into and eat smarter has a big impact on your brown adipose tissue, which again, brown adipose tissue is a type of fat that burns storage fats. The reason that it's brown is that it's so dense in mitochondria. It's the end point. It's the end station for quote, burning fat. This is so, why it's so incredible. Babies have a lot more of a ratio of brown adipose tissue, evolutionary adaptation to help us to protect against hypothermia, for example. And as we grow older, our ratio of brown fat just shoots right down. But we all have some, you know, it's mostly like around our collarbones, shoulder blades, down our spine. But there are things we could do to increase the activity and production of our brown adipose tissue. So that's one. Then we have beige fat, all right, beige fat cells. A beige fat is unique from all the different types of fat cells. They have their own stem cell precursors. Beige fat can actually become brown fat or it can become white fat or white adipose tissue storage fats. So it can become the type of fat that burns fat or the type of fat that stores fat, depending on epigenetic influences. One of those, funny enough, and I'll just throw this out there, because I was shocked, I was shocked to see it. And this is not an advocation for this, but coffee. Coffee appears to nudge beige fat cells into the brown fat, fat burning fat domain. And researchers, and I again broke the study down and eat smarter, used fMRIs and actually looked at the, the activity of brown fat and saw when coffee was consumed. Number one, of course, nudging beige fat to become brown fat, but seeing the brown fat parts of the body light up just lit up with activity when drinking coffee. So, but then we get into the nuance, the type of coffee, how much and all this stuff, but that's for another time. But just one of those really interesting things, there's so many things we could do. Ginger, ginger is actually found to have an impact on hormone sensitive lipase, that specific enzyme that goes and tr- signals that fat cell to open up so that we can use the contents inside, you know, and the list goes on and on. So those are the different fat cell communities. Just to get a little bit more understanding, a sense of closeness to it, and understand that our fat, our body fat is doing what it's designed to do. It's very good at it. We evolved having times of eating and not eating. Today, we just have constant access to food, you know, and does this mean we need to starve ourselves or, you know, to, to do all this fasting? There are definitely some benefits there, but very simple changes can help all of these processes to work in synergy. You know, your storage fats, your, your fat cells that burn fat, protecting your structural fats in your brain. We talk a lot about that and really improving the performance of your, your, your cognitive abilities, your ability to focus, your memory, all this stuff with all the incredible evidence we have today. But all of our fat cell communities are incredibly important. Yeah. For listeners, you have to get Eat Smarter if any of that was even remotely interesting to you, because it goes even way beyond Everything that he just said, you get all of the really deep specifics and it's so fascinating. I just have two really quick questions. One is super rabbit hole, but the intramuscular fat, they often say on like keto, low carb diets that our muscles get better accustomed to running off of fatty acids compared to carbs. Do you know if that increases intramuscular 
fat as well? Or is that a different thing? Like the ability of the muscle to run off of fat versus storing fat in the muscle? I can't say for certain if intramuscular fat is going to be specifically functioning differently, you know, based on the fuel inputs, but it's possible. It's definitely possible, you know, because of course, like your brain starts functioning differently, running differently when we have different fuel coming in. You know, we're talking about ketones, you know, your, your body's incredibly adaptable, but the intramuscular fat is just really doing what the rest of our fat cells do. Because here's the thing, you can overeat any of the macronutrients and lead to fat storage. You know, it's just number one, the quality of the, the macronutrients that we're eating in the first place, the impact that it has on our appetite regulation, meeting our, our nutritional needs, filling up that nutrient bank account with all the vitamins and minerals and all the things that we need, you know, our essential amino acids, et cetera, to really function optimally. And, but, you know, you can also be on a high fat protocol and increase your intramuscular fat. So it's, it's more so of how also your, your genetic predisposition, how you store your fat and having the right balance of the macronutrients for you to make sure that they're running optimally. Okay. Yep. So, so many factors as per usual. And then one sort of esoteric question about fat, do fat cells want to get fat? So like if a fat cell is empty, can it be okay with that? Or is it going to aggressively want to be full? And by I don't know if it's the fat cell that wants to be full or the brain that wants the fat cell to be full. I'm just wondering if when people lose fat from their fat cells, if those fat cells are sort of destined to want to be full. Oh my goodness. It's such, I love talking with you. It's such a great question. It's such a great question. Yes. It's kind of like, I love the fact that you said this is esoteric. It's kind of like the fat cells purpose, you know, it comes into existence. Its purpose is to store fat. You know, it's my purpose. And what if you don't have, you're not able to fulfill your purpose, you know, but you also got to look at the other side of the purpose, which is to provide that energy, you know? So it's, it should be like an in and out kind of, you know, like I'm going to work and doing my job, then I have some time off. But what we do know, and this is one of the most powerful things for us to understand that we break down and articulate, especially just seeing people who've developed this state of learned helplessness because they've tried so many things and just wondering why their body will not cooperate. So as I mentioned before, you can't indiscriminately kill your fat cells. When you're born, you have about the same amount of fat cells throughout your life, you know, but they do, you, you do have them, they die off, but you produce them at about the same rate that they die off. Okay. The catch to this, however, is when we venture into obesity, when we venture into obesity, we actually start to have more body fat cells, but we also have a counterbalance of them dying off as well. All right. So now we're producing more and these very, very hungry fat cells, they become accustomed once we venture to, into obesity, they become accustomed to hanging on to a lot more energy. And so now when you pull back and you change the nutrition, right, change the way that I was eating growing up, for example, you know, 30 of my close family members, 28 of us, my family members are obese. All right. So eating the way that we were eating, once you pull back on that stuff and you start to eat more nourishing foods. You know, some people might, you know, they're taking on a specific caloric restriction. And we, again, we talk about the nuance with caloric restriction in Eat Smarter because there's epicaloric controllers. But anyway, so they change the way they're eating and the fat cells are accustomed to being filled with energy. Wow. What the data shows on these fat cells being very resilient is specifically in relationship 
to your hunger and satiety hormones, which driving you to basically seek out more food. You know, it makes it very difficult when you, somebody loses a lot of weight because the metabolism has changed so much and these fat cells have really, it isn't just that their purpose is to store energy anymore. They've taken on like, my purpose is to store so much energy. It's a competition. And now all of a sudden it's taken away. What purpose do I have? Right? So this gets in the conversation and, you know, working with people over the years and, you know, the TV shows and things like that. You see the contestants from shows like The Biggest Loser, right? Where they are just, oh my goodness, it's crazy. This, this insane amount of weight loss they do in such a short amount of time. But the after stories and, you know, hopefully everybody's seen some of those. It is not good. The majority of the time, it's not good. We do have those smaller percentage of long-term success stories, but the way to go about that, you know, we have to have a level of grace and intelligence and understanding how our, our, our cells are working really, you know, especially our fat cells. And, but with that said, this is not to say that we can't lose fat with speed and with grace, but it's getting a better understanding on how the processes work behind the scenes and fueling our bodies with the right nutrition to counterbalance these hungry, hungry fat cells. I'm thinking about that game, Hungry, Hungry Hippo, when I was a kid. I don't know if that's still a thing, but to counterbalance that with the right nutrition, because this is a big takeaway too, is that chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic overeating, right? Chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic overeating. And so one of the biggest driving forces of our hunger-related hormones is not just one, it's not just ghrelin, there's many others. We talk about several in the book. We have to make sure that we're providing our bodies with the raw materials that it needs to do the processes of fat loss. We have to provide those nutrients or we're going to, again, we're going to evoke hunger. And there's nothing more challenging than trying to lose weight, trying to lose fat when you're chronically hungry. It is the, one of the worst things that's been inundated in our culture. We've been inundated with this idea. I've had so many people come in that they don't feel that they're doing a great job because they're not hungry. We're inundated with this idea that if you're hungry, it's working, right? It's this idea of starving yourself so that you are successful. And that actually came from the person who really indoctrinated our culture with the science of, well, lack of science. Let me be clear with the science of calories, all right? And we talk about, we go through the history of calories. This was Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters. And she actually encouraged people to seek out hunger, like you should be hungry. This was a time of food rationing as well. And she said that every hunger pang you feel, you should have a double joy knowing that you are saving the hunger pangs in someone else, right? You're sacrificing and making yourself hungry. You're losing weight, feeling great, hungry, but you're going to be helping the, the, your nation and losing weight as well. But the sidebar that a lot of people, she struggled with her weight her entire life as well. You know, she's the person who really integrated calories into our culture. This was the shift of taking food as this multifaceted dynamic entity, because food truly does, as we talked about earlier, food becomes you. It becomes your brain cells. It becomes your heart cells. Your heart is made from the food that you eat. Your blood flowing through your, your veins is made from food and water, of course. But this stuff matters. And it's so powerful and dynamic. But this is when the shift of taking food and turning it into numbers took place, which is incredibly tricky, incredibly scary and sketchy. And she said in her book, and I went back and read these old fangled writings, 
And she sold over 2 million copies of this in the earlier part of the 1900s. At that time, that's basically everybody who can read got this book. And she said, we will no longer eat food. You will no longer eat food. You will eat calories of food. And with that, you'll no longer eat a piece of bread. You'll eat 100 calories of bread. You'll no longer eat a piece of pie. You'll eat 100 calories of pie. And when we made the switch to thinking about food in terms of numbers, we lost the metabolic impact that food has on everything about you. Every single bite of food you eat, we've got entire fields of nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics looking at how food literally determines your genetic expression and how your genetic expression determines the food you should be eating. None of that is taken into consideration when we start thinking about food simply in terms of math, you know, but not to say that the calorie system can't be useful, but there are seven clinically proven things that control what calories do in our bodies. Those are the epicaloric controllers. So, you know, that's a lot. And it's such a great question and thing for us to, to think about in relationship to all this. But ultimately, it's just about us really understanding some of the stuff in a way that makes sense, being empowered, helping ourselves to be the best versions of ourselves, helping our families, and really at a time we need it most to really help our communities to get healthier. This is so incredible. And I'm so glad that's where you took it in your answer, because that was something I wanted to ask you to talk about was the calorie model and how it got infused with being the ultimate answer and picture and also this morality that got infused in it. And it's just, it's just crazy. And listeners, I know we've made Eat Smarter seem like a very scientific book. It also has so, so much about mindset and society and relationships and how all of these factors affect not only your diet and your body weight, but also your goals, your dreams, your visions. It's really just an incredible book. Actually, the last question that I always ask every single guest on this show is just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? The first thing coming to mind, oh, wow. <laughs> the person who just popped in here. I'm grateful for my wife, my best friend. I think that one of the things that our genes really expect us to do is to have connection and community and and love. You know, love is one of those things where, you know, me being a scientist, it can seem very like, you know, just kind of on the fringe. But truly, you know, the expression of love, the the, the expression of togetherness the former U.S. Surgeon General, prior to the pandemic, he had a, a book coming out. You know, we're going to have a conversation about it. But look, with all the science on how loneliness is a, the greatest epidemic we're facing as humanity, especially here in the United States, and the, the data was just so shocking. And then COVID hit. And so recently I've been sharing some of the data of the, the fallout of the isolation, and it is terrible. It's absolutely terrible, especially to our children. And so, you know, folks can, I post a lot of this stuff on Instagram. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram, but also, you know, just doing really masterclasses of it on my show as well. But the bottom line is, it's something that our genes expect from us. And so to have somebody who, you know, I'm so close to and I can kick ideas around with that can also, you know, she can get on my nerves, I can get on her nerves and learn how to be a better person and, you know, work together and all the things that come along with that. It's just the greatest gift. And I literally, the first thing that I, yeah, I, have a, I have a little gratitude practice that I do. And as I mentioned, you know, the science with love is, you know, you're producing very beneficial hormones and neuropeptides and neurotransmitters when you feel connected. 
when you feel love. This could be the love, you could, this could be a fur baby. But this is, I think we need to proactively really put more intention and, 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 and awareness around that, how important connection and love is. You know, so, you know, every day my gratitude practice starts with her. So I'm really, really, really grateful for her. Well, I love, no pun intended, I love that. When I first started reading the book, I think one of the first things you talk about in it is the role of love languages and how that even relates to food. And I was like, oh, I love this book because <laughs> I, I just think it's so, so important. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. Your show is incredible. You're just really making all this information, information that just needs to be out there and that people aren't talking about, even in the diet health biohacking community. You're putting it out there. It's so accessible, so easy to understand, to read. I just, I can't thank you enough for your work. Speaking of, how can listeners best follow your work? Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you for the amazing questions. People can pick up Eat Smarter anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, BAM, all that good stuff. Definitely local bookstores, if you can. The audio book, it's just incredible. You know, when it came out, it just shot right to number one in the country as well. I'm grateful for that. Just because, you know, the way that we live today, we're on the go so we can get access to this information and have a good time and just really keep ourselves plugged in. So if people love the audio book version, they can pick that up as well, the different places that have audiobooks available. And people can check me out where they're listening to this amazing podcast. You can find my show as well. It's called The Model Health Show. And again, thank you so much for this. It was so fun. Thank you for the amazing questions. This was really awesome. Thank you, Sean. I've been dying to talk to you for so long. You're just amazing in person. This is incredible. Hopefully we can stay in touch and talk again in the future. Definitely. It's already done. Oh, perfect. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.